I invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 6. Children, if you're ever wanting to know where the book of Psalms is, just try to find the middle of the Bible and chances are you will land on one of the 150 chapters that make up the book of Psalms. Well, we are desperately dependent upon the Lord even as we go before Him reading the Word on our own, studying the Word together in the company of others, or proclaiming and hearing the Word proclaimed, we are in desperate need of God's help. So let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. Father, so often we take it for granted. We, it's just another book on the shelf Father, would you uh, take that um, away from us? May it not be just a book on a shelf, but the words of life as they come from you. So, Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts, that we would know what we are to believe about you and what you ask of your people. Father, as we look into the mirror of your word, help us to have good memories and not walk away and forget what we look like. Oh God, have mercy on us now as we go before your word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here at number six in our summer series, seeing all of life is worship through the Psalms. Uh, chances are um, the Lord doesn't return and we continue on. Uh, we'll be doing Psalms next summer because they provide a really good uh, series of, as it were, standalone messages, even though uh, they're all tied together as they capture that divine human encounter. Um, I want to start off just by making some statements that we already know, but I think it's always good to be reminded that the church of Jesus Christ is called to be counter-cultural. For those of you that may have grown up in through the, the 60s, hey, you, you're at home in the church. The church is called to be counter-cultural. Cultural, you know, the material, godless culture that everyone lives in. And we do that um, primarily, but we, we are countercultural primarily by telling people, including ourselves, not what they may want to hear, but rather what they need to hear. Well, what does our culture around us? The water that we swim in, the air that we breathe, what, what does the culture, what do people want to hear? They want to hear, I'm good. They want to hear, uh, I'm about avoiding pain at all cost. And they certainly don't want to hear something like this, I need to change. If you've been on our website you know that there are 10 articles we recommend. And I'm often talking to people and they ask me, what is grace and peace like? And I tell them, come and see, come and taste, come and be a part. That's the only way you'll really understand what we are like is to be with us, to be among us, not just on a Sunday morning for worship service, but throughout the week. But if you still want to learn a little bit about us from a distance, I, I recommend certain things. And one of them is, Read the 10 articles on our website. They give a really good um, 
a taste. It's like, uh, what is that, Taste of Cincinnati? Uh, that where like, you can go walk around and get taste from all these restaurants. This is a taste of grace and peace. There's ten dishes, and they're all free. And, and you can read them, and one of them has been there from the beginning. It's in our visitor's folder. It's, um, it, it's, it's been a go-to article for me. It's called Repenting Always by the late James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for decades. Um, here's how he ends this article, Repenting Always. Another friend of mine says that the trouble with Christians is that they do not believe they are sinners. But we are. And unless we know it and confess it, we will never be much use to a world that needs not so much the evidence of righteousness in us, which they can copy by their own fleshly efforts, as living demonstrations of God's grace, which they need but cannot copy. People who know they are sinners, who confess it and who depend on God's grace will live increasingly holy lives. But they will hardly be aware of it and they will certainly not be talking about it all the time. They will be too busy marveling at the mercies of our God and concerned that others might come to know Him also. I love that statement where it just says... uh, what people need is they, they can't copy. They can copy outward behavior, but they cannot copy inward transformation. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the Spirit of God transforms us from the inside out. Well, you heard that title, Repenting Always. Well, what's a good definition of repenting, repentance? How about Westminster Confession Excuse me, Westminster Shorter Catechism 87. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace where a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. The two quotes in the something to think about section of the order of worship uh, speak about repentance. Luther says this, the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. John Calvin, not to be outdone in his magnificent institutes of the Christian religion, which for those of you that have read have found them to be affectionately warm and not cold and distant, but drawing the reader, as it were, almost to the throne of God as he, as he explains and unpacks Scripture. Calvin says this, that Christians practice repentance throughout their lives. God assigns them to a race of repentance. So all of us here are running a race of repentance, and the finish line won't be until we're in the Lord's presence. That's when it'll be over. Because according to God's word, repentance is a part and parcel of what it means to live, to walk as a Christian. One commentator said this as I was preparing, no sin of yours will ruin you as long as you repent, but nothing else will save you if you don't. We just finished a few weeks ago our lengthy 
series in Mark's gospel. And you remember, there were 12 disciples and Jesus ministered with them and among them. And you remember, there were two in particular toward the end that we saw blew it. I mean, really, one betrayed and one denied. They were very similar. They both, as it were, walked away from Jesus. But in the end, they were shown to be very different. Well, why were they different? Well, the difference is found in their relationship to repentance. Peter repented. Judas never left despair. Judas sadly took his own life. Well, here we are in Psalm 6, and it's not very well known. It's not really considered important by many people. And yet, Jesus quotes Psalm 6 twice that we read in the Gospels, in John 12 and Matthew 7. In order for Jesus and His ministry to be quoted twice from Psalm 6, He must have read Psalm 6. He must have studied, meditated. Psalm 6 must have been part of Jesus' life. An important aspect of worship we will see is repentance and we see a lifetime of repentance with the author of this psalm, King David. Remember when David was relatively young, he sinned. He repented. But we also have scriptural evidence of David being old and sinning and repenting. At 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, we read this. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Whether he was young or now that he was old, David was running this race of repentance. He kept sinning. He kept repenting. The early church designated seven psalms as penitential psalms. Most of us are more familiar with Psalm 51, which we sang. There's Psalm 32. There's also Psalm uh, 38, 102, 130, and 143 that make up what are called the seven penitential psalms. A good definition of a penitential psalm is this, a psalm in which the speaker confesses sin, expresses sorrow for sin, describes the effects of guilt, and petitions God for forgiveness and or celebrates God's forgiveness. Now Psalm 6 is the, the lead-off penitential psalm. And we will see that repentance is not so much direct and explicit, but once it is recognized, it is a dominant theme that flows throughout this psalm. Psalm 6 can be divided into, obviously it's 10 verses, but uh, today we're going to divide it into two parts, what I'm calling confession to God and confidence in God. Let's... Um, Take a look and discover together what God has for us in this portion of His Word. And join me as I read Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard my sound, the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. First, the first seven verses, confession to God, not so much directly, maybe because of sin, but directly because of the sorrow of sin. First of all, David is facing a crisis, and we see that in the first three verses. We don't know the historical situation, and you know what? That is a good thing. Why could not knowing the details of a historical situation actually be a good thing? Because it more easily transfers to our life here and now. If you had all the details, you may say, well, that's not exactly like my situation, but because it's a little bit vague, it can more easily map out onto our own lives as well. Well, we don't know the historical situation, but what we do know is this. David is facing a crisis. Listen to the words. He is languishing. Now, I like the word lounging, you know, like lounging by the pool in the summer, but languishing. Who wants to languish? His bones and his soul are troubled. Notice the, the bringing together of the physical and the spiritual. Oftentimes, you can't separate them. God has made us as psychosomatic beings, body and soul, material and immaterial. His whole person is troubled. And notice, David um, repeats the word trouble in, in verses 2 and 3. Um, Sometimes, if you're, a, if you're a, a, a wannabe writer, you know, your, your mentor will say, hey, use different words. Express yourself with different words. Well, here, translating it from the Hebrew into the English, trouble and trouble, it's a good way to translate it the same way at the same time. David is saying, I am troubled. And because he's troubled because he is in trouble, and I think he's in trouble mostly here with God. And so it's therefore he must turn to God and, and we will see he does turn to God. And he knows who God is. Remember we heard from Exodus 34 God's own description for who he is as, he was, uh, as we read in Exodus 34. Um, he knows here though and expresses God is angry at sin and God responds to sin and wrath. But he also, as it were, remembers Exodus 34. He remembers God is gracious. Notice 
where he says in verse 2, be gracious to me. Uh, the New International Version translated it, be merciful. Once again, it's sometimes really hard to go, is it grace, is it mercy? Be gracious to me. Be merciful to me. And therefore he asked, in particular, he asked for healing of this body and soul trouble. His heart cries out, how long? How long? Um, he, he's saying, I don't know how much more I can take. How long? Have any of you all ever not been able to sleep at night? It's terrible, isn't it? How long, O oh Lord? Whatever it is that's keeping you up at night, the tears are flowing. As David would say, that his bed is drenched, his couch is, is, is soaked with tears. How long, O oh Lord? And in Psalm 42, I believe it's, How long, O oh Lord? How long? It's one of the psalms that miserable Christians can sing. How long? How much more can I take? Are any of you all in that situation right now? Is one of your prayers right now, how long, oh Lord? I often tell folks, you know, most of us could stand on our head for like a minute, right? But not for an hour. How long? How long, oh Lord? I don't know how much more I can take. Well, whatever else is going on around him and in him, we see the misery of a man who has been suffering. And I believe suffering from a sense of guilt within him, which almost overwhelms him. And he makes a cry. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. David has had a sense of God's absence. And he wants a sense of God's presence. He requests deliverance rescue, salvation. But notice how verse 4 continues. Save me. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. More about that shortly. He also is remembering death and the silence of death. And there's no ability, as it were, to praise God from just a physical death. Because in sickness, it's hard to praise God. David is saying in death, it's impossible. David here is, is sort of articulating a fear of death. He wants to live. He's crying out, God, don't give me what I deserve. In other words, be merciful to me. Be gracious to me. But rather give me what I don't deserve. Be gracious to me. And so David here in this cry that's made out of his condition throws himself on the kindness. He throws himself on the mercy and grace of God. But notice how David continues to describe his condition. We see that in verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. I drench, I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. Grief. It, glow, it grows weak because of all my foes. Moaning, tears, weeping, waste away, grief, weak. Aren't you glad that this 
is in God's word. Yeah, we live a victorious Christian life because there is victory in Jesus as the men sang with the men at Fairhaven Rescue Mission on Friday evening. There is victory in Jesus. But in this world, Jesus himself says you will have trouble, difficulty, trial, tribulation. There's moaning, weeping, grief. You're weak. He says, my eye, in other words, whatever I see around me, I'm grieving. Notice King David, general of the army David. Foes that would have normally caused David to rise up and take action only now serve to crush him in spirit. If anything will save David, it will be not because of his own efforts. He is way beyond advice. He is way beyond self-help. He is bearing the burden of a guilty conscience. The human heart can only take so much pressure. I'm thinking of blood pressure. But think about the pressure on the human heart underneath this burden of sin and the guilt of sin. David says once again, I'm in agony. Oh Lord, how long? What can miserable Christians sing? They can sing the Psalms. And it's any wonder why when the women studied the book of Revelation, one theme that kept coming out from that letter, patient endurance, patient endurance, patient endurance. Depression and exhaustion like David is experiencing is beyond self-help or good advice. He needs a savior. He needs to be rescued. Asking for a Savior is difficult because we have to admit our need. And if anything, the gospel is charity. And it's only people that know that they're poor in spirit, they're broken, they're spiritually bankrupt, see the riches of the gospel. Well, there is no way now that we are going to see how that anyone could obtain confidence in God without a confession to God. And David's confession is acknowledgement of of his sin, his misery. I, I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Into an estate of sin and misery. Sin and misery are not the odd couple of TV years ago. No, sin and misery are are bosom buddies. He's miserable. He's acknowledging it. There's sin. But we see here this confession is both an acknowledgement of who he is, miserable, sinful. But it's also an acknowledgement as we have seen and will see that God is merciful. And so in verses 8 through 10, as the psalm ends, we see confidence in God. A shift is made from confession of misery, confession of sin, to confidence. Now, it is sudden according to the text, but who knows how long it actually took. Look, verse uh, 7, it grows weak because of all my foes. Verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard my sound of weeping. Who knows how long that transition took? It's sudden. God, 
in the text, David makes it clear that God has listened. He has heard. He has acted. He has heard the sound of his weeping. He has heard his plea. David says, my prayer has been accepted. One commentator says this, the sure knowledge that his prayer has been answered is not something which a man can work out for himself, but it is a gift from God. We see in this text that David has received this gift. The psalm here ends with an outburst of defiant faith. It's a sudden possession of confidence. And the move has been made from confession to confidence, from conviction to comfort. Well, let's ask ourselves, what is this root of confidence? What is at the root of David's confidence? Well, it is God himself, the character of God. And so we need to go back to earlier in the psalm. God looks upon David, not in anger, not in wrath, but in mercy. Look at verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, your covenant love. Every now and then we sing a hymn, O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul on thee. David is experiencing this love that will not let him go. And David is resting in God's mercy. As one of the children's Bibles says, a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The root of confidence is God himself, who God is. And the fruit of confidence is this. David now fears God more than he fears man. The circumstances, we don't know if they've changed. But his view has changed. At the foreground now is God and at the background is whatever David was going through. I remember my sister talking to me once saying, you can change the location, but you can't change the view. Well, here, David's view has been changed. He sees the mercy, the steadfast love of the Lord. David is confident in the Lord. He's brimming over with confidence in these last three verses. And I think... That can lead us to understand that our biggest enemies are those who seek to undermine our confidence in God. And our biggest friends are those who take God at his word and point us to him. And so my question is this to us all. Are we enemies of one another in undermining confidence in God? Or are we rather friends to one another in 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 supporting and strengthening that confidence in God. And my friends, when confidence in God is, is uh, a, a burning wick that almost is, is snuffed out, that is enough to be fanned into flame. Because when you have confidence in God, you can endure anything. Without it, not much anything. Psalm 6 
helps us understand man's relationship with God. In trouble and at ease. Because man's biggest problem, your problem, my problem, is not really on the horizontal level. Our biggest problem is on the vertical level. Our our biggest problem is not in the realm of the temporary, because it's temporary. You ever thought about that? It's in the eternal realm. Because in ourselves, in our sin, God is against us. And yet in Christ, God is for us. God's judgment is terrible. David's acknowledging that right at the beginning. But his mercy is great. And his mercy is found in Jesus Christ alone at the cross. Nowhere else. That's who David was looking to. And so Psalm 6 also shows us that our, our, our confidence is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. We're going to sing in a few minutes in Christ alone. And we say our hope is found. It's in Christ alone. But remember, Jesus himself sang this psalm. And he prayed this prayer. Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as we read in Isaiah 53. And in John 12, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. And Jesus there in John 12 is quoting Psalm 6. And we read at the end of Matthew, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. My friends, we can be at ease, at peace, at rest with God because Jesus was for a time in trouble, as it were, with the Father. So as we wrap up, what do you all think about lifetime repentance? What do you think of the race of repentance? Are you tired? Do you want to quit? Does the thought of a lifetime of repentance leave you more discouraged or actually more encouraged? Because when you are confident in God, you really do own two things. You own your sin and you own God's mercy. David in this psalm makes it clear that he was sure of two things. He had sinned and that he had been forgiven. He had received God's mercy. And that certainty, that confidence changed his life, both in what he continued to believe and in what he continued to do. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said this, When I was young, I was sure of many things. Now there are only two things of which I am sure. One is that I am a miserable sinner. And the other, that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He is well taught who learns these two lessons. Are you learning these two lessons? I mean, I get excited when there's only two things I have to know. Right? Two things? I was just talking to one of the boys earlier about, is he still studying over the summer? My goodness, reading seven chapters a day and answering questions? Summer break for me was summer break. 
But I like this idea of two things. What were the two lessons that Newton, former slave trader, turned gospel minister, what did he learn? Two things. He was a miserable sinner. Sin and misery, they go together, right? He's a miserable sinner. But what about Jesus? He's an all-sufficient Savior. All-sufficient. Goes to the very depth of your sin. There's no sin that Jesus can't take care of, except, of course, the one He said that can't be forgiven, which is unbelief. So let me wrap up by just asking all of us this question. Of what are you sure? Of what are you certain? On what is your confidence based? Through Psalm 6, God is calling you to cast yourself and your life on the mercy of God. No one who does that will ever be ashamed. You will see that your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil are turned back and put to shame. All those who confess to God their sin, their misery, all those who groan and weep to the Lord, they will find their confidence in Him. And with confidence in God, you and I can face life in a fallen world full of suffering and sorrow. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have heard You speak to us in Your Word, through Your Word, by Your Holy Spirit. But, O oh Lord, we are prone to forget. Would You be pleased to enable Your Word to go deeply into our hearts, take up residence, that we would indeed continue to learn these two lessons and continue to apply them to our lives, that we are miserable sinners and that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. O oh Lord, be pleased to deliver our lives for the sake of Your steadfast love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians, our confidence is in Jesus Christ alone.